0: Good morning. Now we're going to move into our time of scripture reading. Today's scripture passage comes from Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 10 through 21. You can find this on page 1787-1787 of the Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you. Oh Philippians chapter 3, starting from verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of, what, of that which for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. for. so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord written for his people.
1: I'm preaching. Uh, <laughs> Nick is. I think Nick is in the back membership class. I heard Nick is actually preaching. I hope, and uh, he's in the back membership class. And a- as we all know, Nick, he's probably talking to so, um, so. So he'll be here in just a second. Um, Oh, sure. Yes, I can talk about financial peace. Yes, so one of the things Nick was going to talk about is Financial Peace University, and we showed a video last week uh, about Financial Peace University. We've run Financial Peace University for a long time. That video was not great. Um, one, of the, one of the problems with that video, so one of the goals of Financial Peace University is to help you build wealth. Um, but in that video, one of the things they did is it, it showed, oh, look, Nick's here. Um, LAUGHTER do you want to talk about this or do you want me to finish up? Great. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that video showed was, uh, it said like you can live the life you've always wanted and it showed pictures of people golfing on beautiful golf course and kayaking through. The purpose that we have as Christians of building wealth is not actually just so that we can go golfing and live however we want and do whatever we want with our stuff, right? It is to create a surplus with which we can bless and love other people. Um, and so that is the reason why we run Financial Peace University here, because we want you to not be a slave to debt and to your money, and we want you to be able to build a surplus so that you could love people, to give generously to all sorts of things that God might want you to give generously to, and call you into doing things that you would know not otherwise be able to do because you would be a slave to your money. And so that's why we run it. It's not so that you can just go golfing whenever you want. Golf's not evil, but that's not really the point, right? And so we just wanted to kind of clear that up, um, because it was a little confusing. That's
2: great. Do you want to say anything else? No. No, Adam, that was great. I could have said it better myself. Um, So are you guys ready to dive in? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know if you know it, but um, something's happening today at High Point Church right now in your midst that has never happened before. Um, There is a change that I have been kind of sculpting and working towards and changing expectations about for literally a decade um, to get to this moment where I changed something, and I suspect that the majority of you don't even know the changes happened. Little nudges, tiny changes, little incentives, so that I could slowly move towards a particular change. Does anybody want to take a shot at what that change is? Yeah, that's literally it. Yeah, this is, the, this is the first Sunday in almost 14 years I've worn jeans on Sunday morning. Yeah. I've had speakers that wore them. I wore pants that you would have wished were jeans. Um, I've been dressing down in every other possible way. Um, but yeah, this is the first—and I was going to wait till I'd been here 15 years, you know, but I thought this is such a great illustration for this morning that I'll just go for it because I don't like the winter, you know? Uh, one of the things that, that's difficult for us is sometimes if people directly contradict what we know we believe in, we realize that, and we can get defensive and be like, I'm not doing that. But when we're part of a system that's slow, little tiny changes, little adjustments, nobody ever knows when to fight. You know what I mean? Um, one, of, one of the things about Um, the American Revolution is, uh, one of the hardest things to figure out was everybody was unhappy with England. But at what point of unhappiness was it time to fight? And the problem is, is that in order to have a revolution, everybody has to agree on the same time. Something has to catalyze the change. Otherwise, everybody thinks that we should say no at a different moment. And then there's never enough people to say no, and everything just keeps going the way it goes, right? What I've been calling for the last three weeks the technopoly— that is, everything poured into our lives through our technologies and everything behind it and everything constructed around it and all of the ways that it functions, is the most advanced version of changing everything slow enough so nobody realizes anything is changing that's ever existed. And it's the most effective form, probably, that's ever existed in its functional, technological, and psychologically advanced subtleties. That's why when, when you got this card on your way in, hopefully you can still get one out in the lobby, I said there's, there's four things we, I, want, I want you to consider, right? Two negative, two positive, two in, in our thoughts, like how we think about the world and two what we're going to do, right? The negative thought is we need to see and flee the technology. We need to see what's happening. And we need to say, I am not going to be part of that. I'm not going to be submitted to it. I'm not going to go along with it. I'm not going to be herded in that direction, Right? And on the alternate side of that, what we need to think is that Jesus is not just Lord that is king, and he's not just Savior, the one who rescues us, but he's also master, that is, the one who has mastered the way of God. And we then are his disciples who are learning from him. Does that make sense? And he teaches his disciples not just a body of content, but a way of life. And the reason he teaches his disciples a way of life is because we are not computers. We don't learn things by just downloading something and then we've just got it on our hard drives. Right? Because as human beings, we have to be a different sort of person in all the different seasons of our life. We have to remember some things and forget other things. We're constantly changing and adapting to our environments, and we were made to be the kind of creatures who can and do and must constantly change and constantly adapt. Your body every minute is getting rid of millions of cells and making millions of new ones. Because every minute you're changing for the environment that you're in and what you're around, and so is your— mind, and so are your reflexes, and so are your, is your neurology, and so is your thinking, and so is your feeling, and so is your spirituality. We think that we're one thing. We're not. We are constantly changing. We're constantly forming or deforming all the time, right? I'm 46, so mainly that's like right in this area for me. I can see it the best, but it's happening in all of me and in all of you, right? And in order for us to be ready to figure out what to do, we need to know what we are as human beings. We don't just have to start with a good theology. We're way beyond that, right? Even before we can start understanding why God does what he does, we have to start with who we are, and we have to start with what theologians just call a good anthropology, a good sense of what a human being is. And at least these four things are necessary to understand. We are creatures. We're not just hovering minds or mere spirits. We are embodied. And part of being embodied is having a biology and a neurology and hormones and— change, and aging, and all those sorts of things, right? We bear the, God's image. We have this, we have something wrong with how we function. We don't naturally function in perfectly spiritual and moral ways. That, this malfunction in us from the fall is called the flesh, and Jesus says that actually has to be killed and not enjoyed or embodied or embraced, right? And then fourth is, is that we have a destiny and a purpose. Now, one way to say that is that we're kingdom builders, or we follow Jesus, or we have a purpose to grow in godliness and to do good to those around us. You can say it a lot of different ways, but we are not purposeless beings. And therefore, the default of pleasure or ease or safety isn't really our purpose. All those things are things we enjoy and seek, but it's not why we're here. It's not what we are. Right? Now, I've tried to use, like, some hallmark point of, like, where can we stick in— a marker. I used the illustration of like drifting last, last week or the week before, where like, if you're just looking and you can't see the shoreline, you're just in the ocean, you could drift a really long way and not know you're drifting if you don't have a marker to look at and be like, how am I moving? Like, if you don't have something to say, to mark yourself against, right? And the markers I'm trying to put down in this so that we can see how much we're drifting are these four: Faith, the content of our faith. What do we believe? Time, which is an expression of our strength. What are we doing with the life that God has given us? The third is formation. What is shaping us or unshaping us from what we were meant to be? And love. Do we actually care about anyone and act like they are subjects rather than— that, to be loved rather than objects to be used, right? This week I'm going to talk about formation. Now I'm going to say four things, and I'm going to try to say them quickly because I have a lot to say about them, and I, I believe this is just barely scratching the surface. So I'll, all I'm trying to do is like to give you like—it's like a Rorschach test. I'm going to just hold up an image, hopefully to associate you in the right direction. All of these points have a thousand subpoints, but I just want to get us mentally, emotionally responding, hopefully in the right direction, right? And the first thing I want to say this morning is godliness is a gift. It's accessed by faith, and it's also a developmental triumph. If a person—if you could say that a person in Christ is godly, they've pursued godliness, they're growing in holiness, they are like Jesus the Christ, right? You can say it in a bunch of different ways. But if somebody is spiritually growing, that is a gift. It's—the theological term for this is forensic. It's something that has happened, right? It is also accessed by a particular thing, faith, believing in and trusting God on the basis of his precious promises, to quote 2 Peter 1, right? But it's also a developmental triumph. It's also something we do. We participate in. It's a place where we can get. Now you might be like, Nick, I'm not comfortable with that last bit. Okay, I get it. That's why probably why you're in the evangelical Protestant church and not Roman Catholic. But here's the thing. We all emphasize different things. And we have to emphasize the forensic, faith-oriented nature of salvation. Salvation comes from God by faith to pardon us of sin, for us to experience the miracle of regeneration, and for us to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us so that we actually have the power to change. And all of that is a gift of God. And that state— has to be intensely participated in by us. Right? And so it's also the pursuit of godliness is the pursuit of a triumph. So one way to say is the book of Romans is a long exposition of salvation. And if you want to learn more about it and work through that, because the whole scope of salvation is the book of Romans, then go to um, Devin White's um, Sunday class. Is that second hour or is it right now? Second hour. Yeah, you go second hour today, it's like the third class, but you can catch up. He's very readable, you know? And so (laughs) Romans starts out with this thesis statement in chapter 1 verse 7. It says, For in the gospel, that is what God has done, the message of the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is from, that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written in Habakkuk 2 4, the righteous will live by faith. Right? Now, that is a, that is not a very literal translation of that verse. A little bit more literal translation would be something like this. A righteousness is revealed from faith into faith, just as it is written, the righteous from faith they live. Now you can understand why we have the other translation. It's a lot more readable, right? And that's why translations do that. But if you think about this, what, what is, what is the Apostle Paul saying, right? He's saying that the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that God wants to give us so that we're not objects of wrath, but can be objects of his redeeming love, right? but also so that we would actually be the human beings in his creation we were meant to be. We would actually function righteously. That we would actually be able to bear the image of God and act like he created us to act, like it says in Ephesians 4, that we could function, recreated in the the image of our creator in true righteousness and holiness. That's a reference to our action in the world, not just our forensic state under God's giving us a pardon of forgiveness. And so this verse basically says this. He says, look, the righteousness from God, it's revealed or it's made manifest in the world from faith to faith. Meaning, the righteousness comes by faith. That, that God offers a promise to us and says he will redeem and pardon us if we'll believe in Jesus as Christ, who died for our sins and rose for our justification. We don't have to stand in enmity with God. He will step in and pardon us and put us back into a relationship with him and give us his power and his spirit and a new creation and regeneration, all those things. Right? And then— That faith that saves goes into faith, meaning it comes out as faith. And then faith expresses itself, like it says in other of Paul's epistles, in love. Like at the end of Galatians, Paul summarizes this radically by saying, nothing else matters except faith expressing itself through love. This is a similar thing. How does righteousness happen? Real righteousness. Is it people who are moralistically, like, saying that they're better than each other? Is it people just trying so hard that maybe if they obey enough, God will love them? No, it's that God pardons them by faith, and that faith then comes forward unto faith. So that the prophet in the Old Testament said, the righteous lives by faith. So so you can be righteous, right? In the Old Testament, there was the wicked man and the righteous man. You can be the righteous man according to the Bible. Will you ever be able to boast to God that you're righteous? No, you will not. (laughs) But can you stand justified saying that I am acting in the world, I'm being the person God has meant for me to be, albeit under the sacrifices of his atoning work so that I can stand even in my mistakes in his presence, but that his pleasure is on me, not in just what he's put on me, but in how I'm living it out? And the answer is yes. God can be pleased in and with you holistically. The righteous man doesn't, though, live to earn God's favor, he lives by his faith. Every righteous action, every choice, every sacrifice flows from faith. And so righteousness comes from faith and by faith. We receive a forensic righteousness of God. We forgi- receive our forgiveness and pardon by faith. And then righteousness that must exist in the world for there to be any justice, any love, any goodness flowing out of the work of Christ in the world comes from faith. Does that make sense? And so faith, friends, isn't merely forensic. It's developmental. It takes us from here to there. It actually counts us righteous, and then from faith to the faith in which out of faith we act righteously as best as we know how, it produces something developmentally in us, right? You can see this in a more romantic framework of of like how it's being expressed in Philippians chapter 3, right? He says, Paul says not that I've already obtained all this that is the righteousness of Christ or I've already been made perfect but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus took hold of me. Notice the inner working of from faith to faith. The it's all the work of God and I'm taking hold of it and acting myself. You see he says the reason why I'm taking hold of Jesus that is an action I'm taking I am doing the action of taking hold of Jesus is because he took hold of me. Right? And then he says I'm taking hold of it I am forgetting what is behind. I am straining towards what is ahead. I am pressing on toward the goal. I am going on to do that in order to win the prize. Right? And the way he summarizes it at the end of that section is, let us then live up to what we've already attained. Do you see that in working? Let us, out of faith, pursue the righteousness of Christ in action because we have received by faith the righteousness of Christ. That the one motivates and creates the other, and it does so developmentally. It's shaping us at every moment. We are being shaped into the image of Christ. Now listen, you might be like, Nick, that just sounds like moralistic religion, and I don't need—that sounds really hard. You may have all kinds of negative thoughts. Here's what I want to tell you. Here's the positive side of this. There's a thousand positive sides. I'm just going to give you one, okay? If you believe in Jesus the Christ, your life, no matter how boring, stuck, difficult it seems, is always going somewhere. Do you realize that? It's always going somewhere. You are becoming the righteous, everlasting being through faith that God intended you to be, and he's renewing the image of your creator in you in true righteousness and holiness right now. You can be like, well, my kids are tough, and my job sucks, and I have cancer, and like none of the things I thought my life would be have turned out, and I've been hurt by this person and that person, and I've had these traumas I'm working through, and my life is stuck, and I just got, br- got dumped by the— fifth guy I thought would be my husband, and blah. All that's happening. Here's what I want to tell you. No matter what is happening, if you are, if your trust is in Jesus the Christ, this is also happening. And it's better. Just a few verses before this, Paul says this is what it feels like. When I'm becoming like Jesus, seeking this righteousness that comes from faith and flows out of faith, he said it's like becoming like him in his death. Experiencing being killed, and through all of that pain, trusting God, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. To experience through that functional death real life, both emotionally in, our, in the moment, and then actually with our bodies. Right now. I need to keep moving here. Um, now, you see, so- sometimes people have this fallacy that, like, if we're supposed to be godly, that's the point— then why don't we just memorize all of Jesus' commands and just, we'll just do them and then we'll be, right? One of the fallacies of, like, just trying to have a standard is that if you want to have a standard, you have to always be, like, upkeeping that standard, right? G.K. Chesterton once said one of the fallacies of conservatism, like, we're just going to keep it the same, is nothing stays the same. If you want a fence to be white, you don't just leave it alone to keep it white. You have to constantly be painting it right? And it turns out that human beings fall apart even faster than fences, right? Even if you feel like you do everything you know Jesus said to do, like right now, right? The thing is, is like you're like a white fence, though. You need two kinds of development. One, you need a developmental nature of vigilance. You need to be keep upkeeping what God has done in you, and also pursuing what he not yet done. And both of those are equally important. And once you get a passion for that, once you really get a taste for it, it is exhilarating. Like, I I know it's weird to say, but like, I'm at the point in my life with Jesus where when Jesus shows me this new way that I'm terrible, it's kind of exciting. Because it's like the new chapter. Like, whatever else is going on in my life, this enormous personal problem that I'm now going to face, (laughs) which is really humiliating and that I didn't want to even admit existed, is now the new thing that I'm doing with God. Right? I I may be doing more with God. He may be using my works positively as I work in the world and act in faith, but even like the negative sinful stuff that I'm trying to repent of and grow in, that's where the spirit is working. That's where God is interested. That's where God is active. And whatever else in my life is stuck or stalled or difficult or painful, God is there. And something everlasting is happening. Do you understand? Okay, the second thing is worldliness is a state accessed by faith that is also a developmental tragedy. As godliness is from God, it's a state, it's accessed by faith, and it's a developmental triumph, the apostle Paul goes on to say in this passage that worldliness is a state accessed by faith. That is, we believe in it, and we put our trust in it, and it is a developmental tragedy, right? So. This is what the Apostle Paul says about that, if you keep reading. Most people don't like this section as much as the section before it. The other section, like, people put on their fridge and their mirror and they memorize, and that this is—this does not make that list. But this is what he says right afterwards, right? He says, For, as I've often told you before, and now say even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus the Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So if you organize what that means, it means something like this. Worldliness is not just an evil or a wrong under which we would fall into judgment. Worldliness is a developmental deprivation and degradation. It is a not growing into the things we were meant to be as humans and sucking out of us that which makes us human, right? Many of the Anglophiles, people like Lewis and Tolkien and so on, believe that this was the best image of damnation. That damnation is the human person who goes through their life, instead of orienting towards God, turning away from God, and then slowly having all of the image of Godness kind of sucked out of them, degraded until there was nothing left but the husk, so the image of God no longer remains in redeemable form, so that the person can be damned. That is, damnation is something we do to ourselves, and that God confirms. Now, is that theologically accurate? Only if you nuance it in a bunch of ways, which I don't have time to do right now, okay? But that was a thought experiment they were doing because they saw modernity shaping people towards this degradation. Does that make sense? And so what what Paul says is if you look at what happens when we believe in worldliness, it develops us. It develops us relationally towards the master of creation in a criminal and treasonous way. We're enemies of the cross. We're not just enemies of God and his good rule, what he tells us to do. We're actually even enemies of him trying to fix things. Like it's one thing if like there's laws and you're like, I don't think these are good laws. It's another thing if there's like a tragedy and the Red Cross shows up and you just go and steal everything out of the truck because you want to sell it. Like, that's worse. The second one's worse. And he's saying, like, worldliness doesn't just make you not submitting to the the beautiful glory of God and how he says justice out of work. Like, you're stealing stuff out of the Red Cross truck because you're going against the the very actions and activity and teachings and activities of Christ that are redemptive for people who are lost. And we function, when we don't function under Jesus, as enemies of the cross. Not just of God's majestic rule, but of the cross. His actual activity of redeeming traitors. We're against that. When we believe in worldliness. And he says we're negligent. That is, the way we lead our own lives is just going to lead to our destruction. Everything that we should do for our own good and the good of others, we don't—just don't do. We just don't care, right? It leads us to actually thinking we're awesome relative to the worst things about us. We get—we become proud of the areas where we can be most rightly condemned by God. Our, we take pride in the very things we should be ashamed of, so we become mockers. Mockers are the most difficult people to reach. And They are the thing most well made by the technopoly. Make no mistake. It's making mockers of all of us. And additionally, sensualists, their god is their stomach. Notice he doesn't say their god is the devil. In the state of degradation under worldliness and sin, it doesn't degrade us so far so that the devil becomes our god. The devil is always our anonymous god. Our functional god is our stomach. Right? That is, we become sensuous people. We're just guided by our impulses, our reactivity. We're easily angered. We eat whatever we want. We have sex with whoever we feel like. We, we have no sense of what, like, norms or things we should care about. No, all that stuff kind of goes away. And that's what we're going to—and Paul says, look, I've told you this before. I've said this to you many times, that you need to know that this is the alternative reality. He says, and, and when I say this, as I'm writing this down, I am crying in my jail cell. I'm weeping. I say this. I write this to you with tears. This is so important. Now, I'm not good at crying. Do you understand? But at this moment, February 4th, whatever it is right now, in 2024, right now, in this moment, if I was emotionally healthy, I would say this with tears to you. And I would say, I've said this for five weeks, I'm repeating it, and I say with tears, this is so important. You want to mock it. You want to you like be like, ah, oh, whatever. It's no big deal. It's fine. It's not fine. Worldliness is developmental and it's deprivating and degrading until there's nothing left, until we are irredeemable. This is one of the reasons why when people say this, they say, Nick, one of the things I don't like about Christianity is you can be saved by faith. Just like you believe in Jesus and you're just saved and like that's all there is to it and like that's just so unfair because you can, somebody can live a whole life doing whatever they want and on their deathbed They can just believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And my response to that is, that's true. That's true. If they believe in Jesus, no matter what their life was like, Christ, the blood of the Son of God, can pay for the sins of anybody, and anybody who believes in Jesus, no matter how late in the game, can be saved. But be careful, teenagers, or younger people who think that you don't need to, in the words of Ecclesiastes, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Because what happens is, worldliness degrades— and, and depraves you in such a way as that you're so increasingly out of taste for the things of God that it tastes increasingly disgusting. Your, your pride is in your shame. You have no—why would you believe in Jesus? That's so stupid. And so the longer you go, the less likely there's anything left in you willing to believe. It's like when George Orwell said in the, in the coal towns where people were so degraded in England, they loved tripe and they wouldn't eat beef well-cooked. They were so in in taste for salted, preserved meats out of cans that if you you brought them wholesome food, they didn't like it. They thought it was disgusting. We are formational creatures. We are always becoming something. And you see, if you sit down and watch what you're going to watch tonight, if you think of that when you take out your phone, if you realize that every minute you are becoming something— And what you are doing, your imitative nature is adding what you're doing to yourself so you are always becoming more like the thing you are beholding. Whatever you give your attention to, you become like. Which is why if we behold God and give our attention to God, he will slowly shape us through our capacity for mimicking and imitating to be more like him. And if we give our attention to worldliness, we will become more like it. I don't care how sophisticated or how smart you think you are. Solomon had all the wisdom in the world, and he still married 700 wives, had all kinds of horses and chariots, and piled up gold, even though those were the three things wisdom said a wise man wouldn't do. Because sophistication is a mental treason. Now, I'm a third of the way through. Oh, this is point three. I mean, this is the longest point. Sorry, though. Okay, point three. The technopoly is uniquely inhibiting of godliness and uniquely facilitating of worldliness. Okay. The technopoly is uniquely inhibiting of godliness. It does not help us become godly. It actually inhibits us growing in godliness profoundly, and it's also uniquely facilitating to become more worldly. This is why you have to see and leave. This is why we need a relationship of extreme intentionalism and asceticism towards the technopoly, and many other things, like, like the diet in America right now, too, which would be like a lower tier, but significant, right? Um, this is getting bad enough that very secular people are starting to, in mass now, be going like, this is not okay, okay? The fact that this is the case should tell us how bad it is, all right? New York City became the first place in either America or the world to, co- to call social media an environmental toxin. Now, the fact that we have an office of mental hygiene, to me, is so Orwellian and terrifying <laughs> that I can hardly even tell you how scary that is. But, they're right. If you look at um, some of the psychological studies on um, particularly teenagers and how they feel about their lives, when asked these questions, um, do you feel like, like, is it in your head you can't do anything right? Do you feel like you're telling yourself that? I can't do anything right. Or my life isn't useful. Or I don't enjoy my life. When you draw the line to where smartphones became ubiquitous and so everybody had social media, do you notice what happened? Can we all read graphs well enough? Did we all take statistics? <laughs> Up and to the right is more of it, right? Like some of these things like, I don't enjoy my life, has more than doubled. Do you understand? We are getting all the stuff we want, but in a quiet moment where somebody goes, you know, the, do you enjoy life? Do you enjoy life? And you go, yes or no? The answer is no, twice as often to half the population. And the the entrance of the smartphone and social media and addicting games and stuff that like sort of came in like a flood in 2010 and right afterwards is the strongest additional data point. Now, you might be like, well, Nick, but that doesn't prove it. Listen, almost nothing in social science is proven. Do you understand? Social science just isn't the kind of science that proves things. Right? It, like, it correlates. It pulls it together. It shows it increasingly likely. It's real science. It's real helpful. I trained as a social scientist. I think social science is really fun and really interesting. It just isn't the kind of science where you can go, well, you know, 14% of this is from Instagram. There's no way to study that. And if you try to study it, it would be so expensive. It would be unbelievable. You understand? So we're left with judgment and studying the humanities and having religious faith and looking at what's in front of us, instead of getting really nervous about, like, do we have enough data? No, no. You have to use your judgment. What is happening? You know what is happening. Let's stop pretending we don't know what's happening, okay? Now, um, Doug Smith is a guy who works for Covenant Eyes. I've had this software on my computer um, since before I came to High Point Church. It is the anti-porn software on all of my devices so that a certain group of elders can watch and make sure that I'm not using pornography because you would find that disappointing, and so would the Lord Jesus, and it would not help me, or my marriage, or my kids, right? So I'm really glad to do it. I've never really had a problem with it, and I'm trying to steer clear. Um, uh, Smith wrote this book called Unintentional. He is one of the engineers for Android on Covenant Eyes. So his, his business is he is a software engineer who is writing code to help recognize porn on screens so that we can report it to ourselves so that we can have spiritual accountability. In doing so, he's been doing a lot of research on just how this all functions. Right? And he's like, look, there's so many costs to how this is shaping us. And in his book, he gives a list of five, which I think is great. But the the problem is, is that like—and those are bad enough. But like, I just don't think it—you get the sense of the tour de force of all of the negative externalities of how this is affecting us. And so I'm going to read some for you, okay? This is less than a third of the list I've compiled in my notes. But these are some of the big ones. I can't exposit these because there's like 35 of them, okay? I'm just going to read them, and I just want you to get a sense of them, okay? And these are the things that I think are pretty not real disputable. And there are lots of people in the social sciences that, that believe these are the case. The question is just how big is the effect, okay? So developmental opportunity costs. We're not employing 50 hours a week, right? Loss and less sleep. Netflix literally said, um, in one of their interviews, the CEO of Netflix said they were competing against sleep for, for more views, right? Um, diminished exercise outside, being outside and play, which are integral to human health, developmental losses, especially for younger kids, and reading, rough play, emotional negotiation, individual and social imagination, like pretending by yourself and pretending together, which are incredibly important for emotional development. Kids just don't really do because it all gets done for them now in inferior ways, and they don't do it together. Pretending together with other kids and playing rough with other kids is incredibly integral to being an emotionally stable adult, and we simply don't do it anymore. Okay, let's keep moving. Unprecedented goal fixation addiction. Think you did 10,426 steps yesterday, but you could do more today, right? There are whole addiction sets just on, um, like, metrics to be measured through technologies in the technopoly. Social comparison and of self-image and self-image distortion, mostly connected with social media. All kinds of different forms of addiction, from irresistible gaming to social media to shopping to gambling to porn to texting to news. Even texting is itself, if you have the notifications on, addicted. Because you're get, you're, you're putting out a plea for attention and you're receiving attention back. It is like the most visceral addiction. That's why you have teenagers that send 3,500 texts in a month. Back when, that's why they had to make texting free. Because when texting cost like five cents each text after 500, there were kids racking up hundreds of dollars of debt on their bills, and their parents are like, we're not even gonna have cell phones. And they're like, well, we'll make it free. Just keep your teenager addicted, right? Um, The tipping point for mental illness. The technology doesn't create mental illness, but the bottom 30% of people most prone to falling into mental illness, it affects enough to tip them into it, right? So we have a lot more mental illness, especially connected to anxiety and depression. Then, okay, these are just getting deeper now, okay? Now we have weaker social attachments, and acceleration and intrusiveness of monopolizing materialism. There's no longer commerce and not commerce. Everything's commerce. Everything's trading you as something that bears information and selling you to somebody. So commerce is in your bedroom, commerce is in your family, commerce is in your quiet time, commerce is in, there. there is no non-commercial space in your life, and therefore, no non-materialistic space in your life, right? Tribalism and division, probably don't need to say much more about that. Amplified antisocial behavior, so stuff that we naturally do to each other as human beings is amplified dramatically because we can access everybody we hate, and we can often do it anonymously, which makes it so much worse. Then just the function of the human mind, right? Scattered concentration, diminished attention span, diminished cognitive ability, meaning we're getting dumber. First generation of adults now who have IQs lower than the one before in America. It's the first time it's ever happened in American history. Diminished memory and learning, we can't convert stuff into our memories. Stuff flits by us so fast, we don't hold stuff in our functional memory long enough to convert it into long-term memory. It's one of the reasons why you can study for hours as a student and realize that you didn't really learn that much and you didn't do that well on your test, right? Because even if your phone is in the room, even if it's off, studies show that more than 20% of your cognitive energy is still focused on your phone. It never isn't there until it literally isn't there, and then it takes days for it to totally work out of your mind. It's always taking up your RAM. It's like, it's like that bloatware that they put on your phones that like makes your phone go obsolete early, and you're like, why do I have to have this stupid thing? It slows everything down. That's literally what your phone is to your life. Like a quarter of your mental capacity It's just gone to just have it with you, right? Okay, keep going. Diminished processing and linear capacity. That could be a whole sermon. Diminished reflection, reverie, meditation, etc. All of those diminish our capacity for creativity and imagination. Then our emotions, because all those other things allow us to emotionally regulate and become emotionally mature. So our emotional depth, our emotional stability, our emotional sensitivity. That sensitivity meaning like that we can enjoy just normal life. The reason you can't enjoy normal life is because you're so hyped up on all the like flashy stuff that when you look at like a normal real thing, it's kind of like, Eh. right? The worst example of this is obviously pornography, right? You have all these like whatever women doing things, and then you have like a real woman, and she's just not as exciting to you for some reason, right? It's because like you're overstimulated that the, the senses that you're supposed to have that are supposed to be very stimulated by normal life, they're underdone because you've drugged up your interaction with other things. Does that make sense? All right. Diminished social enjoyment, because of those other things, we just don't enjoy our lives emotionally, which makes us run for other pleasures, right back to our phones. Decreased social interest and capacity. Diminished emotional adaptability and resilience, which creates complete social breakdown and social ineptitude, which is not fantastic, right? We're not done, all right? Then we have, based on the results of those previous slides, we have moral and character deprivation. There are five characterizations of moral character that have to come together to construct a person's character. Four of those five are directly undermined by the phenomenon I just discussed. Therefore, the formation of human character and morality is dramatically undermined, right? Also, strongly reactive and sensually motivated, so we get real reactive and we're very sensually motivated. Like, if if we get a little bit hungry, we gotta eat something, you know, we can't— Like, people talk about getting hangry. That was just called immaturity just a few years ago, right? Like, grow up, we'll eat in a minute. Like, your blood sugar isn't your mind. Do you understand? Okay. Um, uh, easily nudged and controlled by convenience, safety, comfort, and danger. We don't stand up to anything because we're like, oh, it's fine. Oh, as long as it's convenient, I'll do it, you know? And then it's irritation and impatience with moral meaning, spirituality, and abstract conceptualization. When we—I I can't tell you how many younger people— I've talked to a number of these younger people who are trying to follow the Lord, right? And they've started to read their Bible. And for years, I've heard people say, when I became a Christian and I started having theological conversations with people, I started thinking about my life in terms of, like, how God sees it, and I started to um, try to think through thoughts about God that come from the scriptures, I could feel myself getting smarter. I've heard that from lots of people. What I've heard a lot more recently is people saying, Nick, it's not just that people don't, around me don't believe in Jesus. It's talking about anything like that just irritates them, and they immediately reject even the possibility of talking about anything about meaning. Because I, I start, some people have said, Nick, if people are uncomfortable talking about Jesus, what do I talk about? And, and normally what I say to people is, take a, another couple steps back in terms of meaning. What is your life for? What do you think your life is about? What do you want to be when you grow up? Like, 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 meaningful questions. And the reason I say that is because if a person will talk about meaningful things, they're much more likely to move towards being open to talk about God. Right? Because that's one of them, that's the most meaningful conversation you can have. and connects with the most meaningful things in a human life. The more materialistic, animalistic, sensualistic, like, like moving away from any kind of conflict or dealing with anything difficult, the more addicted we are to comfort and sensuality, the more unwilling we are to let anything in our life that will rock us at all. And conversations about who we should be, knowing that we're not that person. Conversations about spiritually, how we're meant to feel or who we're meant to relate to, or conflicts we're supposed to be able to have, or... God that we're supposed to believe in, that is all so terrifying that it jacks up our anxiety and we run from it to something comforting that we can access immediately. And the capacity to even think or have a discussion that's moral, spiritual, abstract, or otherwise, just simply escapes us. We're completely unwilling to do it, and it makes it literally impossible for anything spiritual to happen. As far back as the 1700s, Edmund Burke was like, look, this cannot go on. You, you absolutely cannot have a people, a democ- you certainly can't have a democracy. Like, people talk about, like, Joe Biden or Donald Trump being a danger to democracy. The biggest danger to democracy in America is the technopoly. It's worldliness. Worldliness is the most— the most dangerous thing to the ongoing nature of a functional democracy is a, a population with no character. Populist democracy devours the foundations of democracy, and creates either just a a mere tyranny of the majority, which is the worst form of democracy, or hands over the responsibility and safety to a tyrant. You remember most dictatorships? You remember what happened right before the dictatorship? It wasn't a military coup. It was an election. Do you understand? People voted for the dictator because they became so interested in safety, so interested in ease, so interested in things being given to them, that whoever said they would do it they just voted for. And in doing so, they abdicated their responsibility to the democracy itself. And when you behave this way, you end up with no good candidates that could possibly uplift your people. And I would argue we may be there. Right? Now, what that also means is that we get to the point of degradation where... We don't even realize that our desires aren't even our own anymore. Smith has a good section on this, and this is very important. Because we still think, even in the state of our sensuality and reactivity, at least our desires are still ours. That's not true. One of the reasons why expressive individualism is so good for business is that if I tell you, look, whatever's in your heart to do, that's what's authentic. That's what's authentically you. And you should do that. You should express that. You should be that, right? That's so profitable if you don't know I'm telling you what to want. Right? But you see, the human person has all kinds of instincts that move us towards wanting things other people want. That's what advertisements do, right? So it knocks me back down to where I'm reacting sensually or I'm reacting animalistically or reactively. And then it says, look, this other person that you think is important and going in the right direction wants X. As a human creature, I instinctively move towards wanting X. That's why we buy cars we don't want. Advertisers have been doing this for generations. But now, they've actually deconstructed us to be exactly where they want us to be. We will buy any crap they sell us, even stuff we would have never been interested in. We believe things we would have never believed. We move in directions we would have never considered. And we think that we are expressing ourselves. This is one of the worst things about expressive individualism. People really think they're being authentic, they're not. They're being thralls and robots to ideas and concepts and wants that have been incepted into them that they don't even know they got from somewhere else. This is the way um, Smith says it. Here's a masterful and insidious one-two punch. With the left, we're hit with the message, follow your heart. Go with your gut. Just do it. Do what you feel. Then with the right, billions of dollars and millions of hours of content fills our hearts, our guts, and our feelings. What a great system for those who would influence us. They start out with a lie that our desires, our feelings, are the truest part of who we are, our very identity. Then they deploy a global infrastructure to create the desires they want us to have. They have us in a double bind. They tell us that we should act on our desires. Then they shape our desires to make us want what they want us to want. I think that might be the most insidious externality of the technopoly. If you only understood one bad thing, it was doing to you. That's sort of the culmination of all of them. That we should be thralls and slaves, really. But unwitting slaves. All right. All right. I'm not gonna take time to do that right now. The result is we have no capacity for spirituality or even belief. I I hear a lot of people talk about I'm gonna try to be quick on this. I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, Nick, But it's like, you know what, the phone's just like, it has this dopamine hit, and like, you know, your neurology like reinforces these things, and like, that's just the way it is. You're like, you can't fight neurology. You certainly can fight neurology. Okay? Your dopamine and limbic system and all these systems that like make you horny and make you want to eat and make you want to like stuff, you can discipline that stuff. There are lots of things that you can do that engage your pleasure systems. When you go outdoors— and look at grass, it activates your dopamine system. When you look at porn, it activates your dopamine system. You are using your dopamine system to train your brain that is training your mind. It's a cyclical, reciprocating thing. Your receptors and your limbic system is your body discipleship system, but it's dumb. You understand? All it knows is it likes sugar, it likes sex, you know, it, it likes excitement. It likes what other people are doing. It, I mean, it's like it's not real smart, okay? And your brain exists, the other parts of it, to be like, we should think this through. Let's let's see what else we could reinforce, right? Your brain. Listen, I understand that half the world out there thinks that we're just nothing but neurologically determined. Your brain needs your mind to take control and to disciple it, so that your systems will disciple your brain and help your mind. Redisciple it in a cyclical system where more and more you are being formed, shaped, and developed towards a spiritual triumph rather than formed, shaped, and developed to a spiritual tragedy. Right? All right, the last thing is, is that the way of Jesus is uniquely inhibiting to worldliness and uniquely facilitating towards godliness. It is not just that Jesus is— um, our Savior. He is the one who calls us to a life, and, and escaping these things is meant to be passionate, right? The reason I call it romance is romance it's supposed to be something we care about, that we're passionate about. In Romans 3, if you read it carefully, the first six verses are like about moralism. He's like, I've given up on moralism. I'm never gonna live for that again. And then he like, but what I want, my passion is to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me, to go through the death of the crucifixion and somehow attain the resurrection from the dead, to walk in the spiritual life of Jesus, to so receive a free gift of righteousness that I actually live from faith to faith, so that people around me see acts of righteousness. That's what I'm passionate about. And I know that the alternative to that to be discipled by worldliness is an unmitigated, destructive tragedy of self-indulgence. And I'm not gonna live for self-righteousness one more day, and I'm not gonna live for self-indulgence one more day. I'm gonna live with passion in the pursuit of Jesus the Christ. Right? It has to start with that passion. It has to start with that sense of meaning, of identity, of who you are, right? And then it's also the purpose of Jesus. We're doing something. For those of you who are task-oriented, you know, it's like, we're doing something. We're pursuing the kingdom of God among people. We're doing the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. We're living wholesomely as ones who take dominion in creation. We're living in such a way as to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're seeking to pursue in redemption those who do not know Christ. We have a lot to do in Jesus' name. And then thirdly, is that Jesus has a way. And you might want me to tell you, like, well, like— What do I, what do I do? And the answer is this. By definition, I'm not going to tell you. You have to decide you're going to walk it. That's why we come here every week. Do you understand? That's why we have a thing called a church. You have to commit to the boring, strange, weird people around you. And this thing that doesn't glow, you know, with a guy with the eye to wear jeans, you know, like that we're going to actually come and deal with each other's problems and realize that literally in dealing with each other's problems— we are becoming more like Christ in all of the different things that we do, from the rituals, like communion that we'll do in just a minute, to the actions of inviting people over in hospitality, to having children, to adopting children, to being roommates with another imperfect person, living together with them and connecting with others, to living together in small groups and supporting each other, to actually doing things in our culture and in our neighborhoods that are for the good of other people in all of these ways, and even in our work and our politics and our driving. On every level, we are pursuing the way of Jesus so that we have the joy of knowing he's always operating no matter where our life is at and that we are being formed towards the triumph for which Jesus took hold of us rather than the tragedy for which the technopoly and its worldliness would take hold of you. Lord Jesus, um, just I pray that the stuff that's true in what I said you'd use, you'd help us to see and flee what is enslaving and enthralling in the technopoly, that we would take it seriously like maybe we never have before. I pray that young people would literally beg their parents to help them instead of using their reactivity and sensuality to resist them. I pray that we who are adults who are being terrible examples to those young people in lots of ways would pursue something again. I pray that our passion for the work and life of the church would grow. I pray for something as simple as like some people would be like, I'm going to that Romans Bible study in the next hour. I'm going to do something right now. I pray that we would do very practical, normal things seeking to walk in your way knowing that your way will shape us uniquely into the triumph of faith to faith. Help us now as we sing. Help us now as we take a communion. Help us now as we pray together and study the word together. Help us now as we remember what, what I've said that's helpful before we just take out our phone and distract ourselves to something else so that we can't remember it. Help us to meditate and concentrate and to follow you in Jesus' name.